Challenges remaining live from I-70 East in southern Pennsylvania. I'm Ben Rothenberg, and joining me as always in the passenger seat once again is Courtney Nguyen. Happy road show, Courtney. Yeah, it's been a long drive so far, uh-huh. but we're okay. We're good. I think. Yeah. How, how are you enjoying this part of America? You don't come out here that much. I don't. I've obviously visited the East Coast many, many times, but I've never actually been around the east coast in a car okay so yeah it's been different it's been cool it's been fun and we're sort of in an in-between part of america too we are between the midwest and the traditional what people call the east coast for sure we are coming from cincinnati to washington dc where i live before we launch up to new york and we are driving through Pennsylvania now. We were previously in West Virginia and before that, Ohio. Courtney, it was your first time in West Virginia. We stopped in what I sort of refer to as the capital of Appalachia in Wheeling. Some people might debate that, whether it's Charleston or somewhere in Kentucky, I don't know. But it's a, it's a big place in Appalachia. What did you make of your first uh, Appalachia experience? It and was... explain Appalachia to people who might not be familiar with American geography. Yeah, so Appalachia is, is, it's, I mean, the Appalachian Mountains, it's obviously a region in America that's kind of relatively, no, I mean, it's known as being kind of made of small communities that are fairly isolated yes. um, and yeah. very insular communities. And so, yeah, it's just very different, especially for me coming from the West Coast. It's definitely something that is very, for, I mean, it's as foreign to me as going to, you know, I don't know, like if I went to like a small town in Britain in a, in a way, like, you know, I mean, it's... Yeah. It looks the same, sounds the same, like whatever, but, but yeah, no, Wheeling was cool. I mean, it was cool to see like such like a small town that still kind of looks so By the way, old. we're just passing a sign for Appalachian Archery, <laughs> FYI, yeah. uh, which is in Hancock, Maryland, which would be in sort of the Maryland panhandle. Appalachia, maybe for those of you who might be more familiar with pop culture than geography, is uh, the place in the Hunger Games where District 12 is based <laughs> off of. So there's a lot of like very rural, small town coal mining is big mm-hmm. here. Yeah, so that's basically what it is, and it's a part of the country I've driven through a lot. It's really not that far from D.C. and I went to college out in the Midwest, so I've done this route a lot and was happy to take you along and show you this part yeah, of the world. Yeah, it was definitely new to me. I mean, it's, it, I mean, it was cool. I mean, I, I've enjoyed seeing kind of the bridges. It's a beautiful drive. I mean, even though this is like the most direct route, so we're not even taking the most scenic route, but right. it's still been very lush and green, which has been pretty cool and, and stuff, but it's, it's definitely different. It's a mi- little bit of culture shock for me in, in small ways, but, but yeah, it's been fun. Very cool. Let's look back on Mason and our time there. We were there for all of qualies and through the finals, so about nine days. A lot of Mason. Courtney, speaking of shock, it was a fairly laden tournament with news. We were talking about what a news-heavy tournament it was for Mason. Obviously, as we talked about on our emergency episode 52A, which you all should listen to if you haven't before already, Marion Bartoli's shock retirement announcement and all that, but there was also a lot of other stuff that happened that seemed significant. I just do a quick rundown. We'll go through and remember all the things that happened. What first pops to mind? Do you think of what happened this week? Um, shout out some headlines. Sure. Maria Sharapova fires Jimmy Connors after one match. For one match. Yeah. Uh, so there was that. There was a Federer and Adal match. There was a Federer and Adal match and a very good match from Federer. Federer returned to his smaller racket, is not going to use the prototype through the U.S. Open. That's right. That was also somewhat newsy. Federer drops to number seven. Federer drops number seven, first time since 2002. Tomas Verdic makes his top five debut. Yeah. Federer, yeah. Verdic and Del Potro both pass Federer in the rankings for the first time in their careers. Mm-hmm. And they both were like, that's a big deal. Mm-hmm. That's cool. I never thought I'd be ahead of that guy. Yeah. And no, they, they definitely kind of had a pretty good like response to it. They're definitely stoked. Rafa is the number two seed going into the Open. Yeah, that's That amazing. is huge. I mean, that's that's a significant development. Azarenka beats Serena for that's only the amazing. third time ever. And number two beats number one. And in a, you know, what was a very, very competitive match. Quality wasn't always sky high, but it was gripping near the end, for sure. Very close games, third set tie break. Between number one and number two, can't ask for much more in terms of WTA rivalry development. We didn't talk about it in the last show, but Sloane Stevens upset Maria Sharapova was also a fairly big yeah. news. Sloane, who is more known, or has had some good results at big tournaments with soft draws, is one of the bigger giants she's slayed. And there was less, even though Sharapova has been out with a hip injury and there was a less of an asterisk on this one than the Serena win which um, where Serena was actively you know seemed like she was getting hurt during Sloan played really well much better than she has really any time I've ever seen her yeah I no, think it, in that match it's a legit win you know obviously I think 
Maria was, was quite rusty and all that, but but I think it's an absolutely a legitimate win. I think it's a good win for her. Going into the Open, this week she's also playing New Haven, so yeah. she said that she likes to play the week before a slam. Where Sharapova does it. So Sharapova is not playing this week. We'll go into the U.S. Open without a real coach and without only with only one hardcore match on her belt. Yeah, but I mean, are you that concerned about that? No, she's done that a lot. Yeah, I mean, I'm not really concerned about that, and especially when you're talking about a slam, big ass draw. You know, she should have two to three fairly straightforward, you know, matches. The Sloan uh, is a tough first round. Yeah, first that, match exactly. Back. That that that's basically you know a slam quarter. Yeah. You know, to to have in your first round, so. You know she'll have you know, she'll have three to four matches to kind of work her way in and get her rhythm. I really don't think that at this point having a coach in her corner or not in her corner is really going to make that big of a difference. So I'm not really concerned about any of those sorts of things like being an issue. I, I do think that a lot of like some of the off court distractions could be a thing. I mean she's it's New York so. You know, she's doing a lot of Sugar Pova stuff. She's doing a, a launch on Tuesday, you know, to launch a new Sugar Pova line of accessories. I don't know. There's just, like, a lot of sponsor obligations in New yeah. York that can be a bit exhausting. And she's had some early losses there in the past. She lost to Melanie Udan there in 07. Um, or not, I'm sorry, in 09. And Red Bonska in 07, that's all right. Yeah, she's had some problems there. She lost to Panetta two years ago early and what was not a great loss for her. Let's talk about Sharapova and the Connors news. That was really first big headline of the week. Uh, that happened before Bartoli, I think, or after? Either way, no, after Bartoli. Um, but what did you make of the Jimmy and Maria divorce lasting only one match? We talked about them um, when it first happened. We were like, oh, we'll see. It's a weird hire. It's, it's a big name hire. It's a flashy hire. But then it's over. It's over fast. And like abruptly before they open too. It's a big time to get rid of somebody. Yeah, I don't think the split's that big of a deal, and I don't even think the timing. I mean, the timing is a little bit more surprising than anything else. But between those two personalities, it just wasn't, I just really never thought that it was going to work out. I think that, I mean, what does Jimmy know of women's tennis? Nothing. He knows nothing of women's tennis. He knows nothing about Sloan Stevens. Yeah. He's going to scout Sloan. Right. The things that Jimmy was really well known for, which is kind of his competitive instincts and his personality, Maria's already off the charts on that right. on that vein. So in, in that way, it didn't surprise me. I, I thought it was really interesting. I don't know if you read it, but um, Matt Cronin was reporting from, for Tennis.com that Yuri, Maria's father, is the one that actually brought and suggested Jimmy as a coach. And then Marie, and then Yuri is also the one that fired, that made the call yeah. to Jimmy Connors. Literal phone call. To Literal him. phone call to Jimmy Connors to let him go. And I don't know. I mean, it's, it's just kind of a funny dynamic in that where it was kind of like all right didn't work you fire him dad like i'm not dealing with this like you know and you got me into this you get me out exactly so that was pretty funny but but yeah i mean one of the things that i actually really like i mean i know that sharapova was kind of being mocked you know by for the decision and like how indecisive it or how i don't know some people were saying that it was indecision like why do you like fire a coach and hire a coach and fire a coach I'm like, I don't really think that a player who's only had two coaches her entire career really get, should get tagged with an indecisive no, I don't tag. Think so. I don't think that that's right. I think if anything, it shows again her decisiveness and just like, this doesn't work, done. Now, this, this becomes the beginning of a coaching carousel we can reconsider then. But for right now, this was like, she realized it wasn't going to work. She got out of it before the Open because there would have been a lot of press attention. Yeah. on Connors at the Open, and maybe she didn't want that. I mean, Connors, as we talked about cynically, when the hire happened, Connors just came out with a book this year, his memoir, so there was reason for him to want to stay in the spotlight and be actively involved in tennis. I mean, he's trying to be more of a, a figure on the sport now, and so if Sharapova didn't want that, if Sharapova wanted, I think she enjoyed that with Hogshead and with Michael Joyce. Neither of them were very engaged with the press or like looking to make a name for themselves the way that like a Patrick Mortaglu does more of for Serena. I think that yeah she enjoyed the lower profile and she wants someone who's just a team player and if she got any sense that Jimmy was it all in this for Jimmy and not for her she might have got rid of him. She values loyalty. She really does. She values loyalty in a, in a major major way and I think that it you know just has kind of yeah I mean I think that that is a significant area of kind of insecurity with her yeah. um, just you know just personality wise of just not really being sure as to like, do you have my back or do you not have my back? And yeah. it's very black and white, I think, with Maria. So I think you're absolutely right that like, if, to the extent that she might have thought that, you know, he's in it for him and he's in it to get his name on there. And I don't know if you picked up on it, but during all access hour this week, it's not like she was loving the questions about Jimmy. No, she Jimmy. was not liking talking she about Jimmy at all. She was not liking the questions were going to come. And she's a pro and she knows that they're coming. And, and it's not like her to be that dismissive about something that is obviously relevant and yeah. she knows it's relevant. But she just wasn't having it at all. And it all. was interesting also because the way All Access works is a round table. She asked the same questions more than once. Like, I got through her table fairly early 
and asked her about the hire firstly and then about like if she saw parallels between it and what Murray did with Lendl. And then another reporter came down and asked about Jimmy again. And she was like, well, did you? and the reporter, she said, oh, did you already talk about Jimmy? And then a British reporter came down and asked the same question again and then asked about Lendl again and Murray. And she just like was not, I mean, she's a very polished person in the press normally, but it was, she was not loving this line of questioning and not liking the attention right. that it was getting. Cause she's a fairly, you know, when it comes to her tennis, she's very businesslike and low profile and head down, work hard. That's it. She's not someone who's uh, flashy on that front and Connors was a flashy hire. Yeah. So when I saw that the match was going deep into a second set, I duffed into the stadium into one of the photo pit areas. And the first seat I got when I sat down on the bench, um, I just sat down and then I was scanning the crowd to see where Jimmy Connors was sitting so I could like watch him. And I was sort of panning around and got all the way to right behind me and there was his face like a foot from mine. And so when I'm sitting accidentally in front of Connors, I could hear like him, you know, cheering her on, but it was very scattered. It was just sort of like generic, like, at a girl, keep working. It's not his tone at all, yeah. but you know, keep working, move your feet, good job, keep fighting. And just like, what is that going to add to Sharapova? And he did say things. That were, he was saying, like, because uh, Sloan served the match at 5 3 in the third. He was like, if, if Murray wins this game, she wins the match. He kept saying that over and over and over again. Maria lost that game, lost the match. And that was it. And yeah, it was, just, it was a brief Vegas marriage type situation for tennis. We don't see that too much, a one and done tournament thing. But yeah, she apparently did not want any part of that for the US Open, where the media attention would have been way more. Yeah. There, I'm sure there were people, I can tell you for a fact, there were people working on Connor's Sharapova profiles for later, for the US Open buildup. And those all got scrapped. And yep. She was aware, of, she had to be aware that was going to be the question over and over at the open and every time her match is played they're going to show Jimmy after every point so well, then, I mean it, I can also see it as well where this is also kind of dovetails a little bit with kind of the issue of WTA on court coaching that we see sometimes which is yeah. that like with a, such a high profile coach like Jimmy that from here on out anything that she did that was good or bad would be attributed to Jimmy yep. and not to her and yep. she is actually a player who takes great ownership of her own career yeah. she owns her successes and she owns her failures so she'll say like yeah I'm a four time slam champion I've completed this, the career slam I've been number one I'm like that's what she, pretty... that's what she did to the Lendl questions I mean, it was exactly. like Lendl what are the, would you see similarity then she was like no because see I've won four grand slams and Murray hadn't at that yeah. point hadn't won any so she's not afraid to be a little bit braggy Right. But now that's not even bragging, that's it's true. It's the truth. But it's also, I mean, the yeah. flip side of it is also she will own her failures. When you talk to her about, like, her head-to-head against Serena and all these sorts of things, she, to her credit, is just like, yep. Not a rivalry, yeah. It's not a rivalry. Not a rivalry until I win some, you yeah. know? And so I've always kind of respected that about Maria is that, you know, there's kind of no sense of delusion. But she does own herself and owns her tennis in particular. Yeah. And to have somebody come in and be able to... Upstage her. Upstage her and to take credit and in a way that like not only would he also the press would be willing to do that because there's kind of like that weird sexist kind of nature of like oh well Jimmy helped you just like with like everybody's going off about Darren Cahill and and Serana and all that sort of stuff and it's like yes we all know Darren's a great coach but there is a part of me that kind of refuses to believe that like somebody coming down and telling you to be positive is why you won the match match, like that, that that somehow that's good coaching. No, I agree. Right? Like, that's kind of ridiculous. Like, if he wants to come down and give, like, proper tactics and, like... The way Carlos Rodriguez does a little bit. Exactly. You know, like, you know, and it be, you know, yeah, give tactics. Go down the line. Hit flatter. Be, you know, even, like, Sloan's coach, David Dankin, he's, he's a bit better about that. About, you know, use your cross court. Like, you know, if you want to give tactics, I get it. But don't just be a cheerleader and then ask me to tell you that you did a great job coaching. Because that's a bit ridiculous. I would agree. I would also add, Courtney, welcome to Maryland. We just crossed the oh, okay. Maryland. Hi, Maryland. So yeah. So I've been to Maryland before. I've been to Baltimore. There you go. Yeah. So we're in the Maryland Panhandle type area. Still a little over 100 miles outside DC. Courtney, my next question for you is speaking of WTA rivalries, let's just stick on the women because we started with them. What do you make of the burgeoning rivalry at the top of the game? I think you can officially call it a rivalry now that Victoria Azarenka has won two of her last three meetings against Serena beating her this time 2-6, 6-2, 7-6 parentheses 
six. Upsetting her for the title. Serena took this first set in 25 minutes. It did not look like it was going to be a competitive match, but yet Vika managed to win and Serena managed to lose. What did you make of that whole thing? And sort of, I guess, you can expand it to the whole women's week of results. Yeah, I mean, I think that tennis-wise, it is the preeminent rivalry in the women's game. Most relevant rivalry. It sure. is the rivalry of the women's game, speaking in tennis terms. Now, when we talk about what is the preeminent rivalry in the game that advertisers want to see that help the WTA in terms of, like, I don't know, not necessarily selling its product because it's not a rivalry, but like I think you do have to look at Serena Maria as still being the rivalry. It has Q rating. It has Q rating. It's why people tune in. People just kind of don't tune into the Vika Serena rivalry in the same way. No, and I would add, and I would add that I think the rivalry with the most sort of juice to it is probably Maria Vika. Yeah, I think they're the ones who have the most sort of uh, grit or just like clear. Clear Animal, not, like, animosity, yeah, yeah animosity. towards each other. So I think that if you want friction in your rivalries, which I enjoy as part of the rivalry in healthy doses, yeah. I think that's a good one for that. But yeah, but Serena and Vika have been playing some very tight matches lately. Not the Rome final where Serena sort of killed her, but the other two last three matches, including the US, are no, they played in Istanbul too. But some of their last big finals against each other have been very, very competitive, and Serena had losses to Vika that she doesn't have to a lot of players. I'm gonna ask you a question, Ben. Okay. So, Serena made it very clear, and Vika made it very clear, but specifically this is about Serena, made it very clear in her post-loss press conference that she really, and she's done this all the time, that she really likes Vika, that she gets along with Vika, that they compete real hard on the court, but then afterwards, you know, she just likes Vika as a person, and then they, they get along really well. It's a friendly rivalry. Uh-huh. Do you think that that plays any role in these losses and in the way that Serena competes against Vika, that she gets along with her? Yeah, I, I don't totally dismiss that. I think that's fair. I think that you see how many times in the last few years Serena has lost to Sharapova. None. <laughs> I mean, really, she hasn't lost to her since 2004. Uh, something crazy, like over the last 10 straight wins. And she does have that sort of chip on her shoulder about Sharapova. Did the same thing against Justin Ennen. Even though she was getting losing Justin Ennen a lot, you never got the sense she was flat against Justin Ennen. She always wanted to crush Justin Ennen. Same thing with Hingis. Venus, it's a little bit closer to the Venus rivalry a little bit, where the matches just sort of, sort of don't seem like Serena kicks it all the way up into high gear. There were times with matches where she just seemed very blasé yeah. yeah and she just went through streaks so she served the match at 5-4 had a horrible game just really no no killer instinct no killer instinct at all and she she got good she started playing really well late in the tie break yeah. like the end of the tie break like four all five all whatever i think she had double fault in there somewhere mm-hmm. but other than that she made vika come up with some really great shots at the end and vika did and but it's too late i mean serena should have been able to go out there and route vika two and two the way the match started and she just didn't keep her foot on the gas on because throw it whatever analogy you want to use and yeah i do think it's a little bit worrying for serena because i even though this is a world tournament i do think serena wanted to win this tournament she's never won cincinnati i do sort of believe to a degree the idea of her having a bucket list of things she wants to win which includes understandable things like uh Australia and French mixed titles and not understandable things like Stuttgart, which she doesn't even play that tournament. So I'm not sure why she wants to win Stuttgart so badly. Because yeah. it's Maria's. She wants to take Maria's Porsche. Yeah. She, you know that Serena wants to drive out on court in a Porsche while Maria Shevo is forced to stand there and watch and applaud as a Porsche sponsor. That That isn't Serena's. And bless her yeah, for it. And no. I think that that is a big reason why Serena beats Maria. Yeah. Is that there is that, that edge and that animosity. And I, when I see just like Serena and Vika, you know, laughing, giggling. It's great. Like, I'm good on y'all. Like, you have, you can make friends. Congratulations. But she didn't come here to make friends. She didn't, like, if, I bet you, if, I don't know. I mean, maybe we should have, I should have asked this. But, like, if I were to tell Serena, hey, come play Cincinnati, which takes place, you know, two weeks before the U.S. Open. Uh-huh. But lose in the final. She would have been like, I'm not fucking playing Cincinnati. I'm yeah. just going to go chill out in New York. Like, she came to Cincinnati to win the title, to, like, knock Cincinnati off her list. Yeah. And she didn't do it. And and I, there's just a part of me that just watching her through that that final, which, as you said, wasn't always high quality, but was pretty competitive, especially from Vika's side. I mean, I think that Vika still is able to bring her best and her edge and her competitive fire to their matches. I'm just not entirely convinced that Serena does. Yeah, I would agree with that. And that's, that's like you know? she, And that's something that she had a very well-screwed-on smile during yeah. her during the trophy ceremony, for sure, and during the press a little bit. And I think that smile will unhinge, would have unhinged later that night 
she'll get angry. And I think that now having lost to Vika two of the last three times, if they face off, say, in the U.S. Open final or something, or in some other important match in Australia or something soon, Serena will start realizing, like, you know, Azarenka is not someone who you can just sort of take lightly. You need a little bit get the same anger or drive or irrational irritation from her. You need to get to compete. If that's something you need to compete, go out there and do it. Yeah, exactly. If that's it. what you need. And yeah. I think that with Serena, she does need that because I do think that she needs that Serena, not all players are like this, but I think that with Serena, she does have to feel personally invested in her match to unlock like this second, this like top level gear, yeah. you know, and that personal investment can sometimes be animosity. Yeah. Totally. And other times it's just motivation. I want to win the French Open or I want to, you know, or I've had, I've had a recent loss or something. Yeah. Like, but there's yeah. something, but there's something external or like, you know, that she has to kick in. And I just remember when I did my one-on-one -on -one with her in Rome and I did like the Q and A, which is on the beyond the baseline that I asked her, you know, like, when you're at tournaments, who do you go to dinner with? Like, who's the first person you call? It's kind of a standard question I ask a lot of players. And she said very explicitly, you know what? I don't go to dinner with players because then, like, if I like them, it's really hard to beat them. Yeah. She said it explicitly, which is why, like, this whole thing with Vika is, like, a really interesting... It's a disconnect. Yeah, it's... It, and even you, Ben, you asked her, you know, why can you do this now with Vika where you can be friends, but not... With other past rivals. With other past rivals. And I really and she, wanted to say... Why didn't you like Justine? <laughs> but I didn't say that yes. directly. But she yeah. struggled to answer that. Yeah. She was kind of like, it was a lot of pausing and kind of like, uh, 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 thinking back through past you know, rivals. Past rivals. Yeah. And then she finally was just like, I think it just comes down to I like Vika as yeah. a person. Yeah. And that's fine, but I don't know. It's, it's in the back of my head. Other general takeaways here from the women's draw? I think the women's tournament was not especially um, compelling always tennis-wise. But there were some interesting moments. Caroline Wozniacki had a couple, had one big win, or not even big win, but had a impressive win over Petra Kvitova, who wasn't playing awful for most of that match. Semi-finals, you'll hear more from JJ later. Um, well, I mean, I, I think that the player that I walked away being most impressed with weirdly through the through the tournament was Wozniacki. Yeah, I, I think that I was I was impressed with the way she was playing. She was just a little bit different and, and, and uh, you know a little more aggressive. Counting so, on short balls. Yeah. Counting on short balls, stepping in, taking cracks, hitting returns. Especially like returns. Yeah, returns yeah. was the main thing. Yeah, that was sort of the one we were talking about during her match against Kvitova. Like she doesn't have time to think on her turn. She doesn't have time to be like, okay, what's my defense shot here? How do I like make them uncomfortable? No, she just went out there and swung on the returns and it was cool to see. She had a bunch of return winners forehand and backhand. I know people, when Caroline hits a forehand winner, it's like, oh, look, a unicorn. But really, it was pretty common this week. I mean, she went for her shots. We've seen her practice. We've seen her have these matches before where she plays offense. She can do it. It's all mental and tactical. It's all mental. And, I mean, yeah. some of it is technical, especially on her forehand. I think that there are some technical problems with her forehand. But still, it's still a mental thing because even with her kind of weird, uh, kind of hitchy, uh, forehand, she can. You see her in practice, just hit the crap out of the ball. Yeah. So, so yeah. So I think that walking away, I was. I kind of thought, you know what, Caroline's due for a turnaround, and, and, and if not, you know, in the next three weeks, then definitely soon. I think 2014 will be better for her if she sticks with this. Yeah. Um, because it's going to take some adjusting, and because you can't just, you know, flip a switch. Ben Grunfeld was there with her this week. To be working with her pretty close. He was at all our matches. He's always he's, he's been with her a lot. But let's see if maybe if he is. We're talking about her looking for a coach, her father, what the, his role is. If Grunfeld is going to be there more, not that we're saying he is, we don't know, but he's going to be slightly more permanent liaison from uh, Adidas to Wozniacki because Adidas has a lot invested in Wozniacki. He's one of their highest profile clients. There'd be reason for them to pay extra attention to her. Well, but he's no. I mean, I. I... I don't disagree with that. I'm just saying that's been the case for the last three years. No, I agree. I mean, Sven's been right there the whole time, so I don't think that anything okay. is necessarily different in that relationship, unless it's more behind closed doors where the Wozniacki camp is kind of giving him more of a microphone. You know, I don't know. I mean, we'll see. But I, I was very impressed with her. What did, her match against Azarenka wasn't great, though. No, it wasn't great. It wasn't great. Um, and she'll she'll regret how that match kind of played out. I mean, because she definitely had her chances and just really couldn't capitalize. And and I, I and I have to say, I was not on the whole impressed by Vika this past week with her tennis. Yeah. With her tennis, no, yeah, with her tennis. I, I just didn't. Um, even in the win against Serena, I thought that she competed very well throughout the week, and yeah. and that was you know, and that's good to see, especially after 
kind of having like an on and off kind of start, right? Like, you know, crash out of Wimbledon because of in- injury and then right. play Carlsbad, losing the finals, skip to, uh, Montre- uh, Toronto. Toronto, yeah. But in some ways, Cincy. it's almost encouraging if like B plus Vika can come out and win a yeah. title where everyone is and beat Serena. Yeah. Serena, who was at like a C level Serena, I think, during that final at best. If B plus Vika can do that, good for Vika. That shows what her potential is. Yeah, I mean, we hadn't seen a lot of, there hasn't been consistent data from Vika because of her injuries and whatnot this year. Um, we haven't gotten a clean look at her, but she was good. She seemed very happy and relaxed and impressed for the most part. Yeah, she was there. She was one of the better media-wise in terms of being just sort of loose and engaging. And I think that was probably my best quote-unquote week of Vika Press ever. Yeah, no, I would definitely agree with that. So, yeah, so it seems like she's in a good spot right now, and we'll see what she does in New York. While Vika won on the women's side, the winner on the men's side was Rafael Nadal, who proved a 15-0 on hard courts. Between them, Courtney, Vika, and Rafa have only lost one match on hard courts all year. That's something. That's not bad. Way to go, Sam Stozer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, way to take down the Vika-Rafa empire. Let's start, actually, with quarterfinal for Rafa, which was against Roger Federer. And Courtney, while we were in the photo pit, we, after inspired by our Wozniacki Nicolescu reporting, we decided to record our thoughts from there so let's hear what we had to say at that moment we're coming to you live at 5-2 in the third set of Federer Nadal 31 courtside courtside in the photo pit Courtney what's it been like so far it's been the best Roger Federer Rafael Nadal match I've ever seen live and me too this is I think my fourth it's probably you're more than that I'm guessing you're probably at like probably more than that six or seven I'm guessing I don't keep track but this has been a really good one I mean two tight competitive sets but in the third set it sounds like it looks like everything's kind of leveled out and the Rafa that we know right now is beating the Federer that we know right now Uh, there was there was a Roger Jane Stoser moment uh, in the late in the second set that I think totally changed it. Federer battling to stay in at four or five serving, and he hit a shank that went into the upper deck or hit the railing at the edge of the upper Rogelio deck. Rogelio Jane Puig, I'd like to say, on the opposite baseline. Not only did it have missed lack of direction, it had distance. This thing just took off, and upper it deck. was impressive. And I think that is demoralizing for Roger. And it's been just like, the whole sort of thing has just been sort of sad. It's because Roger's playing really, really well. And yet, at no point was I ever really convinced he was going to win this thing. Yeah, I mean, he would, he would, you would have to believe the whole time that Rafa was not going to play better. Because I think you have to recognize that, like, Rafa didn't play well for about a set and a half and really pulled it together in the second half of the Bye. second. That was Carlos Bernard's song, to shut up and so we will. Thanks, Courtney. Thanks, Ben. So, Courtney, what did you take away from Federer at all, 31? What did I take away with it? Well, I think that it was definitely the best Rafa-Roger match I've ever witnessed live. Me too. In terms of how competitive it was. Yep. So, you know, and not just competitive because they both sucked and it was competitive because their levels were low and on the same level, but that it was, like, a pretty high quality. It was probably one of the best matches I've seen Roger play, you know, within the last, like, year. Oh, definitely, so, within the last yeah, 12 months, um, for sure. Yeah, so so that was all really, really encouraging to see, but at the same time, all that, and he still lost. Yeah, and it was... So, that's what got disheartening for Federer during the match. He comes up this huge level, really raises his game, plays his best, and then once... He, he won the first SM5, but once he didn't carry that momentum over and get a lead in the second, once it sort of stayed on serve in the second, I was like, yeah, he can't. Yeah. He's not going to win this. He can't shake it all fully. And he didn't, and he had some horrific shanks at the crucial moments at the end of the second, beginning of the third, that really gave Nadal the edge. He competed well the whole time. It wasn't like Indian Wells this year where he got down and he was injured and he sort of let Rafa go. He really fought the whole time, saved four match points before losing on the fifth, even though even maybe he shouldn't have lost that point because the ball was shown out afterwards. Either way, obviously Rafa was probably going to still win the match regardless, but... Federer, I was impressed by. I don't. I no longer think of him as being a one to watch for an early exit in New York necessarily. I'm not sure he can beat one of the big three guys or Del Potro. I still think he can beat Ferrer if he gets that draw. Do you think he can play Burdick? Um, he wouldn't play Burdick until a semi, based on the seating. It's possible. Yeah, that would be like a toss-up. I think if he got a semi against Burdick, I think so. The crowd would definitely be on his side. He's so much more experienced on those stages. Uh, yeah, I think that toss-up, and maybe even Adelpo wouldn't be an overwhelming favorite against him at the U.S. Open either. I'm feeling better about Federer's chances than I was after the clay season, which was absolutely horrific for him, and Wimbledon and all that stuff. So definitely things are ticking up for Federer if they are enough up is the difference. And I agree with what people, I think someone, not exactly sure who tweeted this at me, or if they even tweeted at me or just themselves, they were just like, kind of tennis that Federer and Adal matches provide, even if this wasn't their best-of-all-time match is so much more enjoyable 
than any of the other rivalries at the top of the game, really, in terms of contrast, especially comparing it to Djokovic-Murray. Djokovic-Murray matches seem just like really grueling sort of chores, really just annoy each other death on the court and out-grind each other and make it physical and endurance, brutal, whatever. And, but this match, because of the way Federer forces the issue and the way Nadal can trade fire for fire a lot of times, and these rallies with his forehand is a lot more fun to watch. I don't know if you agree with that or not, but... It was nice seeing that rivalry back, even if it's one of the last times we see it ever deliver. Yeah, I mean, it does, you know, I think we're constantly all, everybody's kind of on Roger, Rafa watch, right? Is this the last one? Is this the last one? Is this the last one? You know, sort of thing. But yeah, I mean, obviously everybody know. I mean, the, the Rafa-Roger rivalry is what it is. It's the contrast in styles and, you know, that can be compelling. I mean, I personally am not as bored with like the Murray-Novak rivalry or even the, the Novak-Rafa rivalry as much as like a lot of people are. Uh -huh. I think that generally, if you're a Roger Federer fan, of course you don't like the Rafa-Novak rivalry and of course you don't like Novak-Andy because that is not the type of tennis that you like watching. Yeah. So it's not like, I don't think that anybody can stand objectively outside of it and say, oh, one is more interesting than the other. You can say mm. personally, no, I think that you can look at it personally and say, I like this better, and that's fine. But I think that to step outside of it and be like, oh, yeah, well, this one is more compelling than that one. Yeah, yes, absolutely, Rafa and Roger are more compelling for certain reasons. But when it comes to, like, the quality of the tennis or the type of tennis that they play against each other, like, I I don't know. I have a little bit. Disagree, I'm, much more I'm much more hesitant saying, like, making, like, some grand statement. Like, one one is, like, better than the other. Yeah, I just I, don't. I, I'm not as hesitant on that because I do of think Of course you are. Like, you like Roger's tennis. I like, you yeah, like that style. I like, I like, you like aggressive offensive tennis. I like aggressive tennis. So, no, of totally. course, you're going to like that. Totally. But, so, but then, I, like, but, then but I'm not going I'm going to disappoint like disavow like your opinion on the other one though. don't make me stop this car yet, no buddy. i'm just saying like you can't like just like step outside of it and be like yes this is object i i can sit there and say i like watching Andy murray play tennis so therefore i know that i'm going to be biased if i say well i don't mind like that style of tennis because i like that no style but of i tennis. just i think you i think contrast in styles is objectively more interesting than lack of contrast and i think that comes with anyone that's why i was excited to see isner versus nadal in the final because isner was playing huge pure even though isner is on paper objectively not an interesting person to watch whatsoever all big serve and early four, even though he's playing we'll get to isner more later but isner was playing really well this week and had a much more complete game than usual isner's to me interesting as a foil for people because he plays a different sort of tennis that gives you a contrast and stuff isner versus karlovich would not be interesting if you're matching two magnets with the same attraction push at each other doesn't work but when you get isner versus a guy who's a great baseliner and defender like Nadal, I think that just works on paper and is inherently more interesting than Nadal versus another defender. I just think so. I don't know if I necessarily agree with that though, because like just because Isner offers a contrast in styles and he will do that against 99% of like the ATP, uh -huh. I mean, does not make his matches with them any more compelling. Like because his style. He's an extreme case because his style is so, totally sets the tone of the match differently than other people. I could do that. Or like a Burdich. Let's use Burdich as a substitute for him, who's like a more interesting offensive player. Okay? Okay. Burdich versus Murray, I find more interesting than Murray versus Djokovic. What, what about Burdich versus Del Potro? I prefer, that's where personal preference comes in compared to that. I think I prefer Burdich Murray to Burdich Del Potro because it's a difference in styles. But I prefer Burdich Del Potro to Murray Djokovic because if you're going to have both the same, I prefer them both to be offensively tilted than defensively tilted. That makes sense? That makes sense, and that's your preference. Okay. I'm just saying the contrast, I think, is... Look at us talking about, like, the big four rivalries. We're so mainstream now. No, but I'm just saying, like, that's your preference. Like, well, to that. say preference as opposed... And I'm just saying from an objective perspective to say, like, regardless of your preference, like, I don't think that one can say that, like... To, I mean, if you like defensive tennis, then you like defensive tennis. And, like, watching a defender go up against another defender is, like, totally compelling to you. Yeah. As opposed to, like, watching, like, you know, a Burdick versus versus Del Potro where you're like, ugh, these points are so short and it's just like, ugh, it's not really real tennis or whatever. So, I don't know. I mean, all I, all, the whole point of it was all just to say, like, I just don't feel comfortable making those sweeping statements as to which one is, like, more or not less compelling from like a universal truth perspective yeah that's fair so that's all if listeners want to weigh in team ben or team courtney on this as for always you when we do these team ben or team courtney polls courtney you historically have won all of them so you might win this one as well but we'll see i speak for the people <laughs> that you do <laughs> 
Let's talk about John Isner briefly. John Isner in what was the first week in the history of the ATP rankings without a American in the top 20, which I can't, sorry, I could not think of that as a coincidence when I was writing about it this week. It was too easy a, a hook. Isner being in this first week without an American in the top 20, John Isner happened to have one of the best weeks an American has had in tennis in the last three years or so, tied for that anyway, making a Masters final. No one's done better than that just in terms of how many points you earn in a week. 700 points is an objective way to look at it. Isner had some big wins. He beat Laurie Meyer, first round, not that big a win. But then he beat Gasquet, who's number 11, number 10, Ronich, number 1, Djokovic, and number six, 7, Del Potro, before losing to number 4, Rafael Nadal, in the final, which was a competitive final, two tie-break sets. Uh, could have gone either way, theoretically. Courtney, what did you make of John Isner's week? And moving up to number 14, is he the savior of American tennis we've been waiting for, even if he doesn't want to be? He is, whether he wants it or not. I mean, he's he's the guy that, that has the game and, more importantly, the mentality to compete for the big titles and yeah. to put to insert himself and to make every single time he steps out on court a potential for an upset. Yeah. And you listen to the other players talk about him, and they all acknowledge the exact same thing, that he's uncomfortable to play, that he puts so much pressure on them. And, you know, to hear Del Potro kind of be like, you know, nobody likes to play him as a compliment. And to hear Nadal say, every time I look at the rankings and he's not top near 10. the top 10, I, I don't know why that is. And it, the, probably all you need to show Rafa is how well John plays outside of the States. Yeah. But, which is horribly. Give the numbers back because I have them here. He's 66 and 66, 500 player outside the States. And he's something like 131 and 61 in the United States, which is crazy. I mean, and granted, some of the tournaments he's playing inside the U.S. are smaller. He plays... Atlanta 250, Winston-Salem 250, whatever. So there's some padding involved there, but still. I mean, that's ridiculous disparity, and it's something he needs to fix. He doesn't see it as a good thing uh, entirely because it really just reflects more than anything what, how badly he does at these tournaments outside the States, and it's not just play. I mean, grass, he's not done that well. Australian hardcore, he has not done that well. Asian swing, he really hasn't done very well, and that should be a great part of the year for him. So yeah, so it's a uh, he has a lot of room for improvement, and there's no reason if he fixes those things, if he becomes like a 600 player instead of a 500 player. Yeah, I mean he has he has a game that can do it. I mean obviously, you know the the con side of it is that he also has a game that like just by pure luck he can lose yeah. matches because he has he plays with just such slim margins. But yeah. you know I mean he's now made two ATP Masters 1000 finals. He's beaten the you know Djokovic twice at both of them. Pushed, he's pushed Rafa pretty well twice now yeah. in the last two meetings, two tie breaks here, and then the five-setter at the French Open in 20, 2011. Before that, once he took a set off of his mother match. Right, exactly. Yeah. So, so you know, he's beaten Federer on clay in that wonky, you know, Davis Cup match. So, you know, he has a game that can do it. Uh, he's now beaten Delpo. So, yeah, I mean, John Isner is not young. He's, he's on the older set, so is he the future of American tennis? I, I can't say that. But he's the But present. he is the present, yeah. and he is the now. One thing that I will say on behalf of Isner that in terms of kind of like why, even I think within the media, I think to the extent that you root for people, you root for him to do well is because really he's a smart guy. He's like really well-spoken. He's thoughtful. He's intelligent in the way that he, and he's quite humble too. Like He's a good guy. He's a good dude. And so, you know, he's a kind of a fun guy to talk to and press and, you know, and so in that way, good kind of quote to have around like late in a tournament, you know, and doesn't take himself too seriously. He doesn't take himself seriously at all. I mean, he's just he's kind of got that mentality of, look, I'm just happy to be playing professional tennis to, and, and making a good living. And he said that as a defense a little bit, actually, when um, he got asked early in the week before he was back in the top 20 and before he was anywhere near the final or beating Djokovic or anything. He got asked, you know, what do you think of no American in the top 20? And he essentially said, like, that's not my problem. I didn't, I didn't know I was going to be a pro tennis player until I was 21. I just, I'm happy I'm making a living out of it. I never came here to be the savior of American tennis. And so he really washed his hands of that, as did most of the players. Query was like, eh, whatever, I don't know. Which is pretty much Sam's answer to any question, uh, so it's fine. Often, yes. And some of the other guys took a little more ownership of it. Marty Fish, who, if you get a chance to read Marty Fish's transcript from this week, please do, but just be prepared to be sad. Because Marty Fish's transcript this week is one of the saddest documents tennis has produced, I think. He was just super emo and just like, I don't know if I can go on anymore, and just seemed really down on himself. So it, it would not be shocking, I think, with how with morbidly he was talking about his own career in the sport to see him pull record in New York, I don't think. Just the way he set it up this week. 
No, I mean, I think that there's a number of American players who, you know, they're they're getting up there, and I don't think that any of us are going to be necessarily shocked. I think that if anything, like when they play, like all of us will make sure that we do not leave sight yeah, until they until they leave sight. That's the Bartoli rule. Yep. You never leave until the last player is officially confirmed to be in a car driving back to the hotel. And to have not submitted their papers to leave tennis. Exactly. Yeah. So Marty, yeah, if it's not fun, why do it? Yeah. And I just don't think that he's enjoying the challenge. Understandably so. That's not like, a, you know, like I don't think I would under, I would enjoy the challenge of trying to overcome so many kind of mental blocks in order to do my best at my job. That, that would not be fun for me. No. So, you know, yeah, whether it's whether it's Marty or some of the other more established Americans, we'll we'll, be, we'll have our antenna up at the U.S. Open for sure. And if that happens, we may or may not give you another emergency episode. Probably not, because I probably don't think we'll be as shocked. I don't think anyone can top Bartoli for now. Anyway, I hope pulling a Bartoli does not become a thing. Please don't do that, tennis players. Uh, what if Sloane Stevens wins the U.S. Open and calls it <laughs> during this trophy ceremony? That's what she said. Yeah. Um, she was like, "Pretty cool, Bartoli retired during the trophy ceremony," which I agree. That would have been awesome. I'd be surprised if Sloan won the U.S. Open. I'll put it that way. There you go. Talk a little bit more directly again about Nadal. We didn't really talk about him totally. Courtney, what do you make of Nadal's year of him being undefeated on hard courts? And I guess what the prognosis looks like for the U.S. Open. This will be our last show before the draw comes out. For the U.S. Open, he'll be number two, Djokovic number one, Murray number three, Ferrer number four, Burdich five, Delpo six, uh, Roger seven. Irrelevant from there on pretty much, but... Who is your favorite going to the men's U.S. Open? And what do you make of Rafa's year? I think that right now it's impossible to call favorites until you see the draw. I would agree. I think so much is dependent because you could really have a situation where one side has is completely lopsided and the other side's completely, you know, cake. Yeah. I mean, not completely, but pretty cake. So I think that it's it's a bit premature to call favorites. Because, because Delpo, Roger, Andy, and... Novak or Rafa could all be on the same side. Exactly. That'd be crazy. And you could have another side that was like Ferrer. And who's number eight right now? It shows you how great they are, whoever they are. Is it Barrinka? Is it Gasquet? Anyone? Songa? Song is out. Or Songa, yeah, Songa's out. Like okay, so so it would have been so. Songa. So I think now it gets bumped yeah. up to being Barrinka or Gasquet. I'm not sure what the, which one. But either way, soft person that's anchoring a quarter with Ferrer potentially. So it could have really some wide open space there. Who knows? We won't make predictions on that. But yeah, no predictions. It's hard, but I mean, it's it, hard to shake Rafa right yeah, now. Yeah, it's it's hard to kind of like bet against Rafa after seeing what he's done. I think that aside from just what Rafa's done and, and kind of you know going fifteen and zero and winning three ATP Masters one thousands on hard court and beating Roger on hard, beating Novak on hard, you know it's hard to bet against him. That being and I think on top of that, coupling that with kind of the question marks surrounding everybody else, so. You look at Novak, for example, who's supposed to be the best hardcore player on tour, who obviously won the Australian Open. He hasn't won a hardcore title since Dubai. Yeah. That's, that's what's the one, two, three, four ATP Masters 1000s on hard courts. And he showed up to and lost. Final of zero. Of zero. There you go. So he's kind of out there and, and there's question marks in these close matches that he used to come out on top of he's losing doesn't seem to be a hundred percent confident in his game right now so those are some of the questions i have about he Novak. was very negative after his loss to isner he was very very most, negative like, very, neg- very, very negative most self uh critical i've ever heard of it just like self like first question was like isn't the return really well today he, he his forehand was good he was like no i was terrible today i was horrible that was just bad for me yeah and that's not what we're used to hearing from novak there was no novak the diplomat mode we're so used to the press it was novak the angry, unsatisfied, frustrated athlete mode. Yeah. Just different. And if that wakes him up, if, he, if that drives him to do better, and gets a, you know, lights a fire under him, good for his tennis. If it just brings him down, bad for him. We'll see. Yeah. And then you have Andy Murray, obviously defending champion, who's going in with one, two, what, four matches? Yeah. Four matches under his belt. Last year, he only went in with like two or three. So it's not like, you know, and then he won anyway. So it's not like an indicative, an indicator. You know, like so few matches that Andy's gonna suck at the U.S. Open, but you know, there's just not a lot of data to know like what he's what he's in for there, and whether or not there's a Wimbledon hangover and all these sorts of things. And Roger just kind of just seems, unless the draw completely breaks his way, just kind of right now seems a bit non-entity because he just we just haven't seen him, or it's hard to think that he can beat the top guys. Very hard to see Roger beating one of the big Murray, Djokovic, or Nadal. I mean, it could happen, 
with any of the three, Lightning could strike, it could happen. There's no one who I'd say he cannot, categorically cannot beat right now on on fast hardcores. I think that's yeah. his best surface right now, better than grass. Um, and I thought that for a while. And if you look at his results, he's, he hasn't fallen short of the U.S. Open semis only once, and that was last year in the quarters to Burditch. If he gets Ferrer, he could be money in terms of, if he gets Ferrer, one of the other guys does not make the semi, he can make a final, who knows? And Roger can make a deep run, but he could also lose in straight sets to the quarter, in the quarters to uh, Murray and Nadal and Djokovic and wouldn't raise any eyebrows either. And I'm still, I mean, I think I've said this on the podcast before, I just still have my questions about Roger's ability to play seven matches over, over 14 days. His back. Yeah. His back. I, I just, I just physically, I, I have questions whether or not he can kind of do the full slam run. So, so with all that, with all that being said, and then obviously Burdick and Delpo, who I think we're kind of tapping as potential dark horses, are not necessarily reliable. I mean, we may think that, hey, they have the potential, but they haven't, you know, I mean, obviously Delpo's done it before, but, you know, he's also, you know, double faulted on match points at John Isner to, yeah. you know, that sort of thing. So, yeah, all that said, Rafa's definitely the informed guy. So, I mean, he's a favorite in, as far as that goes, but we got to see the draw. Definitely. How about for the women? Women's favorite going in? Serena? Yeah, I still think it's Serena. Serena versus the field. Who do you pick? Oof. Which is basically saying, is Serena more than 50% chance to win? I don't know. I mean, it's always, I still pick Serena. I'll pick the field. Okay. I, I, I mean, that's 51-49. Right, exactly. You know, it's, it's, I think, mean, for me, it's 49-51. I mean, whatever. I think that, yeah, Serena obviously will not shock me. She wins. If someone, if she wins, I'll be like, you pro- you hate her, you know, you you said she wasn't going to win, she won. No. I think that she has somewhere around uh, 40% chance of winning or something, which is still giving her a lot of credit. But, I mean, Azarenka's played very well lately. And then it's about, it's either about, and the thing about Azarenka is she's only going to play her in the final. So that gets her out of the way. I don't see Serena losing to, like, a uh, an Aga or a... So basically you're picking Vika over Serena? No. No, I'm not. I'm, I'm picking some other person, some roadblock along the way. Like a Lissiki type, type thing where someone in that sort of lower seeds range steps up in zones and takes her out. There's just a lot of good players. I think Women's Tennis has a fair amount of depth to some degree. And it could be someone like a uh, Stoser in the fourth round. I was going to say, the name that jumped to my mind was Stoser. Stoser in the fourth round could get her. I don't know, a Jamie Hampton in the third round? I mean, I'm just naming things. You're just saying words that don't mean anything I'm just saying words. A Laura Robson in the third round? Who knows? She could come out flat and have a bad day and someone could have a good day. That's all I'm saying. No, that's fine. I mean, I I, I agree with that. But I mean, I think that in order to bet, I mean, your logic is, I think, 100% right, which is to bet on the field is to bet on, like, Serena against Serena. Yeah, exactly. Basically, is that Serena is somehow going to let herself down. Because, well, as, well, I personally don't think, still, as I said before, that Vika's actually played that great. Yeah. On the hard courts. I would agree. Best versus best, Serena's so winning. And I think that it would, and then especially what kind of Serena said in her post-match press, which was that, like, the U.S. Open's a completely different thing. And she kind of had this look in her eye when she said it, I think the question was something like, you know, do these losses have any impact going into the U.S. Open about, you know, are they going to kind of play with your mind? She kind of had this kind of smirk of just like, the U.S. Open is a completely different thing, yeah. and which is that like, I don't really give a shit about Cincinnati. I wasn't going to kill myself here, but right. I will kill myself in the U.S. Open, and that will be the difference, yeah. you know? And so that's kind of why, when, I remember when she said that, I was like, okay, I see that you, I, I see where your head's at. Can I add another name to the potential Serena feeder list? Oh, the, the list that includes Jamie Hampton and Laura Robson? Yes, I would like to add Petra Kvitova. Well, yeah, I think Petra's always on that list. So. Just to legitimize the list a little bit. It yeah, like, no, it you're, like a weird you, list. you yeah. tailed off horribly the minute that you mentioned Why Jamie. are you always so down on Jamie Hampton? I'm so Dave? down on Jamie Hampton all the time. Because clearly I just don't think Jamie Hampton's worth ever talking about or writing about or interviewing or calling in for one-on-ones or anything like that. So, obviously. Obviously. Sarcasm. One of the things that got some attention during the week from fans we heard from on Twitter uh, was about the contrast in TV availability of matches between the ATP and WTA in Cincinnati this week. And this is something that we're never that aware of when we're on site because we're not watching it on TV when we're on site. We're watching it either in person or on the closed circuit TVs that have these big tournaments, uh, which have give you feeds of nearly any court at any point. Like, for example, in Cincinnati, all eight courts have security camera feeds at the very worst so you can always see what's going on and monitor say a oh, Wozniacki Nikolescu rivalry and burst out laughing in the press room when one of them does something ridiculous that, that can happen so for this one there was a lot of complaining about the men getting more 
court, uh, more time on TV. Similar things have happened at Indian Wells, at Miami, the other combined tournaments. So Courtney, why don't you just tell people what the issue is there and I guess why it happened? Well, I mean, I'm not really, I don't think, in a position to talk about why it happens. But, I mean, it's happening. I think that one of the difficult things for Cincinnati this year and, and why their women's coverage looked particularly, I mean, pathetic, is that it came on the heels of Montreal, Toronto, yeah. where I think that Tennis Channel and ESPN did actually a pretty good job of, of keeping, of giving the women's equal matches time. that were, yeah, I mean, not equal time, but they gave them good, good time, yeah. you know, like if, if you, there was a boring men's match going on and something interesting was going on in Toronto, like tennis channel would click over or at least would like give you the update or something like that and then on top of that matches were pretty much available on tennis tv there was pretty good coverage on tennis tv this past week for cincinnati which is the same level tournament as toronto for the women and for the men but for the women you know like match there was only two matches available a day for the women on tennis tv they were both center court matches if it was a match on grandstand or court three good luck you know, unless you were on site, you didn't get to see it. And that's just really disappointing, especially like with some of the court assignments. The fact that, you know, nobody got to see Wozniacki versus Kvitova, yeah. which was on grandstand court, the which number it, two court. Which in 2012 was the matchup of number one versus number two. Exactly. And, and a really key matchup given like their histories and where they are in their careers right now. The fact that nobody got to watch that is, is really disappointing. Wozniacki Azarenka was streamed. But not televised. But not televised. That's which, a quarterfinal. That's a quarterfinal to, you know, Wozniacki is still Caroline. She's still, you know, a, a name as we saw. Like, she could pack stadiums. I mean, she can, Cincinnati she brings. Cincinnati fans loved her. Yeah, Cincy fans love her. So, you know, that's just really disappointing to see. And, and Venus. Venus got put out on court three um, against Vizina. And I realize Venus is not the most relevant player ranking-wise now. But she still has the second most slams of all active women with seven by a long, by a big margin over Sharapova, number four. She's still a big name, and she's playing matches arguably, you know, on you could say and tail end of her career, sort of. So to put her on a non-TV court, a court where there were cameras, there was the whole multi-camera setup going, but apparently it wasn't streamed or televised at all, and that's just disappointing. The WTA, and part of the reason this happens, which I was bringing up sort of allude to earlier is that the world feed that gets the deals for the tournaments is an ATP deal. That's the eight, that's a men's tennis deal. And the women they do is often just sort of sort of as a bonus or they, they have the option of doing the women and a lot of times like at India Wells for example, the camera operators would just walk away on Stadium Two or whatever when it was a women's match about to go on. The WTA needs to get a better setup than that if they want to keep themselves level. And we didn't talk about this last time we did a show, but in Canada for example um, and I know John Worth and I wrote about this the same way we feel, basically. Canada, the Toronto tournament, the Tennis Canada organized an exhibition match for the night session between two men who had lost in the first round of the Montreal Masters to fly them into Toronto, uh, Bernard Talmic and Feliciano Lopez, who, while recognizable names, are not top 20 players or anything like that. And they paid them each $30,000 to come there and sort of salvage the women's tournament first session or whatever, however you want to look at it. The optics were terrible. I thought that the men need to come there and provide entertainment to, sit to supplement the women, whereas no women went to Montreal or anything like that in exchange. So tonight was nothing like that bad, but still, it definitely meant to main stage. And the more the WTA lets these things happen, the more popularity of the men's game will grow disproportionately to the women's. I think as long as they're getting more TV time and stuff, that's how you get fans. And yeah, it's not going to be good for the future of the WTA. I think WTA should do more to stick up for its product. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's difficult because one of the things that we do kind of lose sight of sometimes is that in these tournaments, in particular, we're talking about Canada and Cincy. Uh-huh. These are not mandatory women's tournaments. In other words, the sanction that was sold to the tournaments, they're not ATP they're not the ATP Masters equivalents. The, you know, it's not like Indian Wells and Miami, which are mandatory tournaments for the ladies and the men. And Madrid. And Ma I know, I'm just saying North American. Okay. Okay. So, like, there are certain tournaments that are joint tournaments where the two levels are the same for the men and the women. On In those situations, I find that there is very little kind of justification for the tournament to say, well, we're going to skew 70% coverage to the Masters and 30% coverage to the women. There's a little bit more justification in my mind from a business perspective if you're going to say, well, it's an ATP Masters. We paid for this. We're going to pimp it. We paid more. I, I, I disagree. I think we talked about this off air before this sure. week. That the men have nine Masters, essentially, and the women have 
four mandatories. But and that has five nothing to do with money, fives. Ben. I don't think it's about money. I think it's about them being on the same tier. If, like, for example, for both the men and the women, this is roughly estimated like the eleventh most important term of the year, or something like that. It's, that's they're, not they're the on point. Le- that's my point. That's that's not. But when you're talking about a financial reason as to why everything's driven by money, it's not like you know we don't just like do things because it's like oh well that's the right thing to do. If we're lucky, that happens, and I think that in generally like general in tennis more so than other sports there is kind of a moral element to some yeah. of the decisions that get made which is why tennis is one of the the most kind of like equal sports when it comes to the men and the women for women totally for it's women in particular exactly and yeah. i think that a lot of that has to do with because there is kind of a social pressure to do things for the right reason and not necessarily for what is immediately considered the financially most beneficial reason yeah now when it comes to the tv deals i don't know there is i mean Obviously, I would love for there to be 50-50 coverage, and I want the women's, I mean, I put it in my report card that, you know, that the, the tournament coverage kind of got like a D or an F because it was just so, like, bare when it came to the women. But I think that there, I do, I guess, have some sympathy to the financial aspect of it, which is that if a tournament is paying more, and I don't know it by what order of magnitude more, but more for the ATP, the rights to... Sanction. The sanction. Yeah, the sanction for the ATP versus the WTA. Uh-huh. I understand if they are going to skew their coverage for the thing they had to pay a load of money for. I understand it. I just don't like it. I, I totally get why, but I'm just saying I would like it. I, I'm just being idealistic on it. There you go. Which is fine. Which I mean, is, I just yeah. think that, you know, it just... I don't want... <laughs> I guess on some level, I don't want it to come off like we're naive as to not understand how the world works. No, we to- I, to- <laughs> I totally understand that men's tennis is more popular than women's tennis. I get that. I've been to tournaments and see that not always, but a comparable men's match will usually be more attended than a comparable women's match. Given, like, I don't know, let's say, like, number eight man versus number 25 man is going to get more than number eight woman versus number 25 woman. On general terms, assuming that, like, something ridiculous, like Venus Williams was number 25 or whatever. Right. I, get, I, I think that's going to be the case, and I get that. My head, my head is not in the sand there, but my head is a bit in the clouds on how I want it to be. And so I'm just, you know, just rabble-rousing. That's all. Fair enough. This is my, this is my sandbox. I get to rouse the rabble as I see fit. Speaking of rabbly rousers, Courtney, we got the pleasure to speak to one Yelena Yankovic this week to be a podcast guest. It's a little quicker than our normal guest segments are, but it was still JJ's someone we've wanted to bless us with her presence on the show for quite a while. And we finally got the chance to in Cincinnati. <laughs> and it was fun. Yeah, it was. I'm not even going to talk about it. I'm just going to let the audio roll because it's just JJ being JJ. It's just JJ being JJ. So we'll let, let that play us out. To sort of segue to the outro song, which will make no sense following JJ, Courtney, there was one piece of Romanian music that uh, especially stood out to you as my iPod shuffled along this trip. Yeah, I don't know what... Uh, yeah, I mean, that's it. I don't know who sings it. I don't know what the... There is no singing on There's it. There's no singing. It's a pan flute being blown into by a Romanian. That's and a... apparently I had to listen to it. Like, if, if I sound cranky and I think that I have come off as really kind of cranky on this podcast... We've been in the car for, like, eight I would hours. like to just point to that moment when I was forced to listen to a freaking Romanian pan flautist. That's fair. My defense of it is... It's not a great defense, but got the CD for the Romanian pan flute for 10 cents back when I was in high school from the UCD store near my school. And I found it highly amusing and kept it on my iPod ever since. And it shuffled to that today. And Courtney had to hear it. And I got, you know, sort of conducted the orchestra pan flutes with my hands as they drove along because I know all the ins and outs of the breaths of it very well. Yeah, it was, it's something and we hope that you enjoy it. But first, first, please enjoy Lady Yankovic and have a good one, folks. <laughs> so Yelena, thank you for joining us. First thank of you. For all, uh, you've obviously done well in Cincinnati. You were just talking about it in the past, and I know the city is sort of a unique stop on tour. It's a smaller town. How do you enjoy life in in Mason? I, how do you how do you deal I with enjoy it here? Well, life in uh, Mason on the tennis court. Um, I played a lot uh, since I came. Uh, I came here on. Monday morning and uh, right away I played that day, played my first doubles match and then until now I kept on, kept on playing the singles matches so I didn't really have a break or I didn't even have any time off to do something else uh, other than play. Mm-hmm. So um, I just, uh, every three minute that I have um, during the day I, I use it for recovery, to rest and prepare for um, you know the battles. 
how, how do you think you are as a, as a traveler generally around? There's a lot of different places you have to go on the tour, so many different kinds of yeah. cultures and stuff. How do you deal with it generally? Uh, for me, the worst thing about traveling is like is to keep on packing and unpacking, and, <coughs> and especially you know when I'm so tired after a long day uh, spent in the sun, you know you gotta go in the hotel and then just pack your stuff and then <laughs> carry all these huge bags, you know, to the airport and waiting lines, and, and and that's to me that's the most difficult part. I really enjoy the. You know, seeing different parts of the world, meeting different cultures, uh, learning about different cultures, um, trying different food, doing some sightseeing as much as I can, you know, in, in when I have some free time, but this tournament I really didn't have any. But usually we have, when we have days off, we all try to do some sightseeing in when, wherever we are around the world, so that's, that's something that um, that is very, that always you can have as an experience. Yelena, when we were in Charleston, we were joking about your hair, when you wear your hair as a ponytail, oh. and the uh, the hairspray. When did you start using hairspray oh. to like keep your ponytail intact? Oh, well that, that's a difficult question to ask. Because nobody can see it right now, because you, this is one of the few times I've ever seen you like not have your hair down. Yeah, my yeah. hair's not washed, it's <laughs> not brushed. Difficult to say, but it's been for years. I cannot tell you, tell you exactly how many years. When you were a kid? Not a kid, but when I started playing on tour and I cut my bangs, my mom told me, cut your bangs, you know, whatever. <laughs> and and uh, then I couldn't pull it, you know, couldn't pull those bangs yeah. in my ponytail. And then I started using those pins, but then when I play my matches, the hair would fall out and I would kind of get frustrated with all of that. And then, um, you know, I found this hairspray that I've been using for years. And a specific hairspray? It's, it's not even, it's, okay. It's like Industrial strength. like very sexy on it. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a Victoria's Secret. I'm advertised now. Okay. It's a Victoria's Secret hairspray. Okay. And it says very sexy on it. And it does not give me dandruff or, and it glues my, it really glues my hair. Uh, I mean, it looks slick and it mm -hmm. looks kind of wet, but it's kind of like cement. Right. It's so hard. And my hair, can go through tornadoes or, or hurricanes or I don't know what kind of conditions mm -hmm. and it's not gonna change, it's not gonna move. But but I you don't but you but you don't have bangs anymore. Like now I you do. Can actually, oh you do? You oh see? yeah you do. I okay. still do. All right, so okay. uh, for my um for the practices uh, I do not use hairspray, I only use it uh, for my matches and, and every player when you know when they see me next to the sink and I just go <laughs> <laughs> They clear out and to make sure they get the fumes. Yeah and, and uh, you know this tournament and I think in Toronto Makarova was next to me every time I was playing my hair <laughs> and she always laughed at me like, Oh here you go again <laughs> I know what you're doing. <laughs> I, I think one of your biggest hairspray moments was in the U.S. Open when you made the final. You had the glitter in your hair, yeah, too. Yeah, I had the glitter there. Yeah, that was cool. People love it. People still call you, like, the glitter queen. Oh, really? Like, yeah, the fans love it. I didn't use that glitter, but I think it was cool because we played a night match, mm -hmm. and, and, I, and I had that really nice Reebok dress, and, and I don't know, the hairspray was uh, with the glitter mm -hmm. on, and then, you know, when the lights were on, yeah, it was kind of shiny. Yeah, you look like a disco and ball. And it, yeah, it was, it was kind of different. I, uh, I haven't used that thing. You should later. bring it back. I don't know. Maybe for you it's open. Yeah, there you go. Fans might petition for you to bring it back. For I, I know, obviously, like being like glamorous and trying to look good doesn't always go hand in hand with being a pro athlete and battling yeah. three set matches yeah. and stuff like that. How, but how important is it to you to keep some element of that in your life? Uh, I think it, to me it's important to. Take care of yourself. I mean, uh, uh, as far as for the hygiene uh, and you know, take showers and. Listen <laughs> <laughs> at home, kids. And, and and I always like I always like to um, take care of you know, have nice nails and you know, uh, do pedicures and manicures as much as I can. Um, we are all day in the sun and we are pretty much training uh, every day and 
traveling. So it's really hard for us girls, uh, athletes, to you know spend time and really take care of you know our pretty much necessities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's important. But and so I try to, for example, put oil in my hair because it gets so dry in the sun. And like now I just got burnt. Um, Your sunscreen? I do, I do, but it, uh, it, I, I, that's why, you know, when people ask me, like, why you always pat yourself with this towel like this? Of course, and then when I rub it like this, it goes off, and then I come out like a lobster. <laughs> so I, when I put the sunscreen and I try to, at least on my face, mm-hmm. to try to pat it so I don't get burned, but I still get burned because I spend, you know, if you spend more than three hours on court, exactly. it's difficult to think about, let's say, if it's like five all in the second or five all in the third, to reapply sunscreen. <laughs> That's not, it's never going to happen during the match. So, of course, um, your skin is damaged. Yeah. So, it's important to, to take care, you know, for, you know, for those. Have you ever, Victoria Azarenka got a uh, pedicure injury? In January in Brisbane, she pulled out of like a tournament because she got a bad pedicure. She said, oh. "Has that ever happened to you? Or no, ever thought about I, it?" I, I, it has never happened to me, uh, fortunately, uh, because I always uh, say what I want. I, you know, we have those calluses and all that. Yeah, yeah. yeah you got to remove a bit, but you can't remove all the way. Otherwise, when you start running and from the friction, you're gonna have even a bigger blister or you know you got to make sure they cut your nails uh, properly otherwise you can get, have an ingrown toenail so i learned all of those things of course you know over time over time um, fortunately not through a bad experience just i've been told you know please make you know just make sure that it's like this and and I just follow those instructions um, so and so far so good. <laughs> so on court or off, what is one thing you know now that you wish you'd known at the beginning of your career? On court? Like on either either about tennis or about life outside of tennis. What is I one know, thing you know now? Over the years, I mean, you, you, you learn different things as far as, you know, hydration. I'm not really a person, like my mom would always go after me, like, keep drinking and drink or you know, eat something during the match, and I would just be like, oh, why, I don't want, I'm not hungry, or I'm not thirsty, and then when I start to kind of feel dizzy, <laughs> you're like, up to late. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> but, I, you know, when you're young, and of course, inexperienced, you, you don't know any better, and those are the times when you, when, when you start collapsing, or when things are, you're not feeling great, then you're like, oh, I should have listened. So, um, like I said, you learn, you learn a lot, and I think if you're smart enough, you try not to make the same mistakes yeah. again. How is your mom? We haven't seen her. Yeah. Uh, my mom is great, and my mom is uh, in San Diego now with my dad and trying to finish my house, mm-hmm. um, furnishing it, and I hope to be there in the offseason. Do you miss her at all on tour? I mean, she was, a, she was, she got very popular with like fans and stuff. Yeah. I think fans you would get her autograph. I my, remember my it in mom was very popular, even more popular than I was. But <laughs> But that's great. I, I love that. You know, I, I love you know pushing the spotlight. <laughs> yeah, that way. <laughs> that way. <laughs> to mom. Uh, to my mom, and I kind of keep it low key. <laughs> you keep really? it. You think you think you keep it low key? Yeah. I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe. You wear glitter on court. Yeah, but that's on the court. That's where I perform. But outside of the tennis court, I just. Blend in with the crowd okay. <laughs> as Fair much enough. as I could, well, thank you as for much as I can. I mean. Thank you for blending in with us, Yelena. Thank you, thank you very much, Yelena. Thank, thank you. you. <laughs> All right. Oh, my goodness.